You never have to advertise a revival. When John Wesley was asked how he drew the crowds, he said, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. I have such a desperation in my heart to see this generation make it. We need revival. We live in a time where sin is not only permitted, but it's promoted. Even in many church arenas. Things that used to shock us. Now we're dull to it. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And if you want to have revival, you're going to have to have it on God's terms and God's way. You can't put it in a little package. You can't turn it on and turn it off. You can't put it in your denomination only or in your church setting only. You've got to have the fire sweep through. And you never know what's going to get burned up when the fire falls. The glory and the fire of God and the presence of His power requires a life of obedience and a life that's fully given over to Him. The fact tonight is this, the battle of the ages is for the passions of humanity. Because the enemy knows that if he can capture our passions, then he can capture our hearts. And I ask you, is God in your heart like a consuming, devouring fire? Is His Word in your heart like a consuming, devouring fire? Friends, if you escape the fire of hell, you will find the fire of heaven. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a baptism in fire. It's a baptism in purity. It's a baptism in refining. It's a baptism in holy heat for the work of God. And on Pentecost, what happens? Tongues of fire come down. You want the glory, friend? You're going to have to have the fire. Something has to change. Listen, God is raising up prophetic forces that will stand toe-to-toe with evil and call it evil. That will stand despite what the faces of the people look like and they will preach through brokenness the word of the Lord that will bring revival back to our nation and back to this universe. And we have to have a move of God. As you begin to seek God for revival, God will show you that you're not in the least bit hungry. God will show you that a thousand other things are more important to you than revival. You say, well, why does he do that? Because when revival comes, you're going to lose all that anyway. Wigglesworth said, oh, if God has his way, we should be like torches, purifying the very atmosphere wherever we go, moving back the forces of wickedness. I want to be ablaze. I want to be a torch for God. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was a lamp that burned brightly. Our nation is in desperate need of a move of God that will change their heart and convict them of sin and bring them to a real place of repentance. Father, this day, I cry out to you, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, Lord, in my life, God, send fire. Burn up that which is born of flesh. Burn up that which is sinful. Burn up that which will not pass the test on that day. That only that which is born from heaven will last. Sin, holy, revival, fire, fire. Raise your voice and cry out for fire.
Jesus. 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 What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Shalom. That video really sets the precedence, sets the stage quite nicely for me concerning the content that we are going to be covering. Over the last, uh, over the course of this series, actually, we've been talking about the atrocities that this nation has committed against God and is committing against God right now. And not just that, but we've talked about what we can expect as a nation to happen because we have embraced these atrocities. But today, we are going to take a turn into the final stretch of this series And we're going to talk about what do we do in light of this information. What do we do with this information? Okay, we're drowning in sin. We're committing lawlessness, wickedness. We're embracing these things. Okay, now you tell us the judgment of God is coming. Well, what do we do about it? Well, today we're going to talk about what we do in light of what is coming. Today we are going to talk about that buzzword. It's buzzing about throughout this nation, and that is prepping. As I noted in week one, our televisions are inundated with a variety of shows featuring survival techniques, featuring tips on how to prepare for various potential events, events which are expected to unfold very, very soon in our near future. And many of these things include preparation for war, whether that be nuclear war, or whether that be civil war, civil unrest. Whatever the case may be, the expectation is there. People are moving to prepare. They're doing it right now. If you just step back and look around you, look at what the newspapers are saying, look at what the news clips are saying on the internet, look at what the television programs are saying, what do we see? We see a serious trend. A trend showing us that people are running for their lives in fear. The inhabitants of this land are consumed with fear. They are consumed with uncertainty. Let me tell you something. You mix those two things together. You combine fear with uncertainty. And I can tell you this. It can be a deadly combination. We have people fleeing the country. We have people taking their money out of banks. People buying silver and gold in expectation of a total economic collapse. We have people stockpiling weapons, stockpiling ammunition, stockpiling food, stockpiling toiletries, stockpiling medical supplies. You name it, they're stocking it. There are people purchasing alternative forms of electricity, right? In anticipation that they're not going to have it, that, that it may be cut off in the future. We have people uh, preparing with alternative heat sources, fearing that they won't have that availability. That won't be offered to them. They want to survive the cold winters. We have people looking for living quarters, alternative living quarters, a bug-out place, a safe place to hide. They're building bunkers to hide in. The question is, is what do we do as believers in light of this information, knowing the horrifying judgment of God is on its way. 
Should we be stockpiling weapons, ammunition, and preparation of civil war, of civil unrest? Should we start storing up food right now in expectation of famine, whether it's caused by drought or it's an artificially manufactured famine as we've seen in literally every communistic country in this world? Do we start storing up potassium iodide tablets? Our government is. We purchased 14 million of them. You don't know what potassium iodide is. It protects you from radiation poisoning from nuclear fallout. Do we start buying these things? Do we start building bunkers to run and hide in? We have to ask these questions. Why? Because people are looking for answers. People are scared. They're fearful. They're confused. There's uncertainty. They don't know what to do. So is our answer to start doing all these things? Can we rely upon these things to preserve us from what is coming? I do find it interesting, this is just a side note, that in the book of Revelation, we find the wicked doing the exact same thing that we see the inhabitants of this land doing right now. The exact same thing. Let me show you. Going to Revelation 6.12, we read, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Moving on to verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. What are they doing? They are fleeing. They are going to their bug out place. They are running to hide. They're going to their bunkers. Going on in verse 16. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So put this in perspective for a second. In expectation of the judgment of God, we find the wicked are running around and they're hiding in bunkers. What do we know is coming to this nation? Judgment. What are the inhabitants doing today? They are running to hide in bunkers, into their safe place, their bug out areas. What a peculiar and eerie parallel. Watching the inhabitants of this land running for the hills, running to hide in their safe place in their bunkers, believe me, this is something you better take note of when analyzing whether or not God's judgment is upon us. This is something you want to take note of. But getting back to our question, what do we do as believers? What do we do? So I want to address this question today, and the first thing I want to do is this. First thing that has to be done before devising a course of action is to first identify the problem. Now many of you might say, well, Daniel, that's pretty obvious. Judgment is coming. Well, that's true. But that's not the problem. That's a symptom of a problem. Identify the problem. What is the problem? Why is God's judgment coming upon this nation? I'll tell you why. It's sin. You cannot 
devise a course of action. You cannot prepare for what is coming without understanding what the problem is. Now, having identified the problem, we can move on and ask, how do we deal with it? What do we do about it? How do we prepare? And the answer to that question is so simple. It is this. It is repent. It is repent. It is repent. It is repent. Repentance is the secret to preparation. Turning back to God is the only guarantee to a successful and wise preparation plan. It's the only way to ensure survival through such a horrific and terrifying situation where God's wrath is literally unleashed in its full measure. Your preparation, let me tell you something, it is going to happen on your knees. It's going to happen with you falling on your face before God. That is preparation. It will happen with you breaking your heart before God, approaching Him with a humble and contrite heart. I can tell you, over and over again, when you read Scripture, this is the secret we are giving to surviving God's wrath. This is the secret that we're given to prevent His wrath from coming upon us. As the video said, we need revival. We need fire. We need repentance. We need to preach the brokenness, the word of the Lord, so that it pierces the hearts of the people. And it does bring them to a legitimate and authentic place of repentance where they are broken before God. Going to Joel chapter 2, verse 12, we read this. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. This is the cry. This is the cry of our merciful God. Turn to me with all your heart. How? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Why? So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Here's why. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. That is your hope. This is good news for me. But there's a way, there's a methodology to follow. Do you want to experience his kindness or do you want to face his judgment? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 22. We read, thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. Now let me interrupt here, because what's going on here is God is telling them, I am bringing judgment upon the land. This is his warning. I'm going to bring judgment upon the land. But listen to what he says. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. One of the things that I think I've covered pretty well in the last couple of weeks is understanding is that when God brings judgment upon the land, you do not understand, you do not appreciate the people that he brings in. They are the most ruthless, godless, and vile human beings the earth knows. They do not show mercy. They will not hesitate to rip open a pregnant woman's womb and kill her and her child. I don't think we appreciate the reality of what's on its way. 
They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. Moving on to verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. This is the response of Israel. They hear this. They know what's going on. What is the response? They're fearful. Their hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman and labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way. Because of the sword of the enemy, fear is on every side. Does this sound familiar at all? Because it sounds a lot like what we're going through right now as a nation. Total destruction is coming and the inhabitants of this land are gripped with fear. They're terrified. So what should they do? What is the answer? How do we prepare for this? Jeremiah 6, 26. O daughter of my people. The Lord responds in telling the people, how do we prepare? Dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. This is the secret to preparing. Take note, this is it. Going to the New Testament, Yaakov, or James, often referred to as, he tells his own brothers, he gives his own brothers, this is in the New Testament, the very same advice. Look at what he says, James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Understand, going back to Ecclesiastes, to everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And for us in this country today, it is a time to break down. It is a time to weep. It is a time to mourn. And it is a time to change, to change the direction we have been going We as a nation, we are choking on the blood of innocent children. We're drowning in our own iniquity. We are drowning in sexual immorality. We are drowning in covetousness. We are drowning in idolatry. There's no more time. We have got to turn back now, right now, or this nation is going to experience something, as I've said before, that it has never experienced since its founding. It's on its way. We need repentance. We need revival. That's what revival is. It is a mass move of people coming in to repentance. What does that look like? What does repentance look like? Well, let me just give you a glimpse at what it looks like by taking you to Nehemiah, the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 9. But if you return to me, This is teshuvah, or shuv in the Hebrew. You're turning back to God. You were going about your own way. You were doing what was right in your own eyes. You were following the dictates of your heart. You ceased. And you turned to Him. And what do you do? And keep my commandments and do them. This is what repentance looks like. You now receive the counsel of the living God, the God of Israel. You embrace them. You clothe yourself with the commandments of God. Though some of you, and here's the beautiful promise, here's the hope. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, 
Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. In other words, we turn, he will restore us. That's a biblical promise. That's a biblical fact. And we see it being played out over and over in Scripture. We will be restored if we turn. Ezekiel 33, verse 14, we read again, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. The proclamation's gone out. If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life, in other words, his commandments. Remember going back to Deuteronomy, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curses, his commandments, his mitzvot. So, and he walks in the statutes of life, now here's the catch. Without committing iniquity. You're not just going about in your own ways anymore. You have conviction. You have the fear of God in your heart. And what's the result? He shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. This is total forgiveness. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. So when I say that we need to become preppers... From a scriptural standpoint, I'm telling you that we need to leave the world right now. We need to leave the things of the world and start keeping his commandments. We have to repent. We have to prepare. This is about prepping. And let me tell you something. It has to begin in the church. It has to begin in the church. The church is supposed to be the moral compass, the moral conscience of society. Send a warning out to the shepherds of the flock. You need to get your houses in order, whether they're pastors, teachers, or rabbis. The churches and synagogues have got to be put in order. And in turn, the sheep are to move out about this country. And they are to preach and teach repentance for the sake of this nation, for the sake of the interest of self-preservation. This has to happen. And it needs to happen right now. Let me take you to Proverbs 11, this beautiful promise. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Multitude of counselors, there is safety. But withdraw them, and they fall. We need men and women willing to stand up for righteousness. We're living in total darkness right now. We need men and women who are not going to back down, but they're going to hold the line. They're going to stand toe-to-toe with evil and call it what it is. They're going to call it evil. They will not be seduced into this political correctness nonsense. They will not cave to the intimidation tactics that we see are being utilized today against Christians, but they hold fast. They hold the line. They move in the strength of the Lord in the strength of Yeshua Jesus. They put their hope and trust in Him. And you know what they do? Because of that, they bear light and they push back the forces of evil. They push back. They realize they're at war. We're at war. And we need to tell everyone we can what is coming. Judgment is coming. And this is not fear-mongering. You understand? This is not fear-mongering. This is salvation. 
We need to tell everyone we can what God is going to do to this nation if it doesn't turn back from its sins. And this includes at the government level. Let me say this, especially at the government level. From the lowest levels of government to the highest levels of government. We need our mayors, we need our senators, we need our representatives, our elected officials to radically make a change and turn to the God of Israel. Literally coming out and making public professions. Calling upon uh, the God of Israel, calling upon the nation to repent of their sins. Calling upon people to cry out to Yeshua, begging for his forgiveness. How? With weeping and fasting. Having our laughter turn to sorrow, our joy to gloom. This is what revival looks like. This is repentance, and this will bring salvation back to this nation. Now, in the book of Jeremiah, we're given some critically important information regarding the judgment of God and the fact that if a land heeds his warning, and let me tell you something, if you're here for the Isaiah 9.10 and the other parts, there are signs everywhere of God warning his judgment is coming upon us. They're everywhere. Well, there's beautiful truth in Scripture. There's beautiful hope for a nation that takes heed to those signs. And we find it in Jeremiah, one of the places anyways, Jeremiah 18, verse 7. Listen to what it says. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. This passage gives us wisdom. It gives us insight on how to deal with our current situation. Can our nation avoid total disaster? Scripture tells me it can, right? But it requires repentance. And listen to me carefully. It requires not repentance just among you and I. It requires repentance at a national level. You understand? At a national level where our government... Instead of supporting sin, instead of legally protecting sin, making it, protecting it, making it a legal right of the inhabitants of this land, instead of doing that, they do the exact opposite. They take the stand through law and they condemn those acts. No longer supporting abortion, no longer supporting homosexuality. You know, there was once upon a time this nation did that. If you've been through this series, you understand that. Let me give you a scriptural example of how this is supposed to look, of how this is supposed to go down. And I want to do it through a story that you're all acquainted with, or at least I assume you are. It's the story of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we find that the city of Nineveh was completely engulfed in sin. But God, instead of just pulling the trigger... And blowing them out, blowing them up, destroying them, bringing total judgment upon them, what's he do? He shows them mercy, and he sends his prophet to them, the prophet Jonah. But here's my question. Now, this is what you need to understand, and I've covered this so many times. When we read stories in the Bible, you need to use critical analysis. 
It's to give us wisdom. We're to study these very, very carefully. He who doesn't know his history is doomed to repeat it. And so when we look at this, I want to ask the question before I get into it, what was it that Jonah was preaching? What was that message of salvation? What did it look like? Well, let's go and see. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according uh, to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, in verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said... Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wow. This is the message right here. Jonah is going throughout the land. What is he preaching? Is he going into his baskets and throwing out rose petals as he trollops through the city, preaching rainbows and butterflies? Is he preaching political correctness? He's preaching the wrath of God. Something that is not popular right now. He's going throughout the city. He's warning judgment is coming. Because you understand this. This is what a watchman does. This is what a shepherd does. This is what a prophet of God does. They warn the people. They don't sugarcoat the message. They don't water down reality. Lest they offend somebody. They tell it how it is. This is not fear-mongering. It's reality. It's not fear-mongering. It's salvation. Now, Nineveh, after hearing this message of wrath, this is coming, one of two options. This is the very situation that the United States of America is in right now. You have one or two options. Accept the message, put it in your heart, and turn, or reject it. How did they do it? What did they do in response to this message? Well, let's continue in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed the message Jonah brought. And what is the response? Well, isn't this interesting? Proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is how we have to handle the situation. This is prepping. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. Are you paying attention here, utilizing this critical analysis? First, it tells us that the people, the inhabitants of the land, grabbed onto this message. It didn't stop there. It went to the king, the highest level of office today, presidential. Think of it as going, it reached the Oval Office. Well, how did this king of Nineveh respond to it? And he arose from his throne meaning he left his throne, laid aside his robe, he cast aside his glory, his pomp, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He humbled himself in the sight of the God of Israel. The highest level, at a governmental level. But that's not it. See, this is where we get into what it takes to prevent the judgment of God being poured out on this nation. It has to be on a national level. So what does this king do? Clearly, he has an understanding of what's going on. He moves on in verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. In other words, Congress passed the law, and he signed it. The president signed it. 
it was put into law, saying, what? Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Can you fathom this? Coming out of the White House? Making it law that you have to cry out to God? And what? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You need to put things into perspective. This will help you understand where we're at in this nation right now and what needs to be done. Verse 9. The king goes on and says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said, relented, mercy, grace. He relented from that, that he said he would bring upon him and he did not do it. This is exactly what we need to have happen in this nation right now. We need to take a page out of the book of Jonah and apply it to our situation here in America. Because if we don't, I can tell you this, in the very, very near future, we are going to be unrecognizable. And the whole dreamlike ideology of the citizens of this nation having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is going to vanish like smoke into thin air. It's going to happen in a blink of an eye. We're going to become a nation who is highly decorated as the freest nation in the world, and we will become the most oppressed nation on the face of the planet. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I want to send this warning out. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you judgment's not coming, that God would never destroy this nation. Oh, it's a Christian nation. Anyone who attempts to proclaim such things is deceived himself. But here's the worst part of it. Both the deceived and the deceivers, they are out in full bloom right now in this country. They are everywhere. They are in the church. They are out of the church. They're peddling the messages of deceit. And by so doing, they sever the conviction of godly sorrow. They create stumbling blocks to prevent men from doing what we've been talking about here. From turning their joy to gloom. We need to start mourning, weeping, and fasting. This is preparation. And as I said, the worst part of this, we got men doing this that are coming out from the church. False prophets and deceivers are going out telling everybody that everything's fine. It is not fine. They proclaim peace, peace. There is no peace, people. And here's the kicker. This is exactly what happened as God was warning his own people in Scripture right before he brought destruction upon them. False prophets went out and preached those messages of peace, peace. Going back to Jeremiah 6, which I didn't cover, it actually says they went out and healed the hurt of my people. That's severing the conviction of godly sorrow. They healed the hurt of his people. They went out making them feel better. And I can tell you this, I have personally witnessed and heard various teachers and pastors, my own ears, 
rejecting the notion that this nation is going to be judged. With my own ears, I have heard pastors attempting to discredit the Isaiah 9-10 prophecy. My own ears. As though it's some ridiculous concept to apply to America. That was only for Israel. We have to remember, all the blessings are for us. All the curses are on Israel. No such thing will be done to us. I've heard others attempt to quote passages from Genesis 18. It says, God won't judge the righteous with the wicked. He's dialoguing with Abraham. Abraham's asking, would you really judge the righteous with the wicked? And since, obviously, there are righteous people living in America, therefore it prevents God from bringing judgment upon it. Let me make something abundantly clear. It is true, God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. That doesn't preclude him from bringing judgment upon a nation which is completely engulfed in sin. Because he can, and let me tell you this, he has. You read scripture, he has done that. There's scriptural evidence of it. So to say that he's not going to bring judgment on this nation, it's total failure in understanding the times and the seasons, the signs. It's a total failure of understanding Scripture, God's mode of operation, is modus operandi. You need to be on guard and beware that deceivers, they are moving about by the droves in this land. And though it may appear that they're bringing this message, this wonderful message of comfort and encouragement, it's full of joy, it's pleasant, the reality is they're bringing nothing but death. This is what I would call the methodology of Judas' kiss. See, Judas betrayed Yeshua with affection, showing an act of affection. We're living in the spirit of Judas' kiss. It is twisted and it is perverse. But if you're a student of the word, if you really are, you've given yourself to the Lord, you realize this type of activity, it's not surprising This type of activity is expected. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In this particular example, you're going to notice that this passage, it literally parallels what this nation is going through right now. And it's critical I show you this because as it happened in the days of Isaiah, like we see in Isaiah 9.10, and as it happened in the days of Yirmiyahu or Jeremiah, so it is with us today. I want to take you back to the book of Jeremiah where we find that God, he reveals to Jeremiah, yes, I'm coming to bring destruction upon the land, upon his own people. Why? Because of sins. But before he does this, before he actually executes the judgment, we find something taking place among the inhabitants of the land. What is that? Well, let's take a look. Jeremiah 14, verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Sound familiar? Because we've been covering this for the last couple weeks. These are God's go-tos and bringing down his judgment upon the land. Sword, famine, pestilence. This is the proclamation out of the mouth of the Lord... He's gone out to Jeremiah and said, this is what's coming. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Look at how Jeremiah responds to this. 
he goes on and Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, in other words, the Lord just told Jeremiah something. Jeremiah is totally confused by the statement saying, well, wait a second, the prophets are saying something else. What are the prophets saying? Well, we read, we continue to finish the verse. You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. This is amazing. So before God sends his judgment, there were people of renown, well-known within, if you will, the church, the body, the body of Israel, who were highly respected among the inhabitants of the land, and they were running around proclaiming that judgment would not come upon this land. We are going to be blessed. They were soothing the people's fears of actually being destroyed. They proclaimed comfort and peace. Let me tell you something. Just as it was in the days of Jeremiah when the Lord had declared destruction against his people, so it is with us today. Preachers and teachers running around touting that God isn't going to judge this nation. We're a Christian nation. God only blesses. He doesn't curse. And we're not under the curse, so we don't accept that message. Let me know how that's going to work out for you. Now, how does the Lord respond to Jeremiah? Look at how he responds, going on to verse 14. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, the deceit of their own heart. Verse 15, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. The teachers, the pastors, the preachers, the rabbis better take note of this passage, and we better all fear with trembling. Are we speaking according to God's commandments? Are we speaking according to His voice? Because if you're not, you're going to be consumed by the very destruction that he is bringing. And it gets scarier because he doesn't stop there. You may think, well, this is good. This is just for the prophets. No, no, no. Look at what it says as we continue. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them. Them, nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. We need to take heed to the wisdom of God's word. We need to take heed to these warnings. Again, let me reiterate. Remember, the stories that are placed here are for our benefit, so that we don't fall according to the same example of disobedience. Read the book of Jude, read 2 Peter, read 1 Corinthians 10, read Romans 15. The things that were written before were written for us. They apply to us. So be on guard. Be equipped. Be prepared. If you haven't become a spiritual prepper, you cannot wait. You cannot wait. It's got to be done immediately. You need to break your heart before God. But for those of you who have been spiritually prepping, who are living a life worthy of repentance, you need to understand you're not done. You need to move and show others how to prep. You need to start warning others to repent. Why? Because judgment is coming. 
for the sins that we have committed. And obviously, this is not a message that just pertains exclusively to this nation, to this time. This is a message with eternal implications for eternal survival. So this is the prepping that we need to embrace. This is the prepping that we need to teach others. Don't think that going out to buy land in the middle of nowhere is going to save you from what's coming. Don't think stockpiling food and ammunition is going to preserve you from what is coming, because it's not. I'm warning you, do not put your trust in these things. Let me offer you some scriptural counsel here. Psalm 44, verse 4, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Yaakov. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. We're not to put our trust in fleshly weapons of war. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Amen? But they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. We cannot trust in guns and ammo and and fortified bunkers. They're not going to save you. Jeremiah 17, 5, further wisdom. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That says it all. That would include yourself. Cursed are you if you trust in your own abilities and your own wisdom and your own physical prepping tactics of how you think things are going to unfold. Whose heart departs from the Lord. That's the catch. This is amazing. Is that when people take their eye off of Yeshua, Jesus, and they start placing all their emphasis and prepping on the physical, what are they doing? Their heart is moving from the Lord to the physical, from the spiritual to the physical realm. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Continuing verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. That is our confidence. This is our hope. It is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear. It's interesting. All the inhabitants running with fear in our nation. But look at what the righteous, the righteous will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought. What does drought bring? It brings famine. The the righteous aren't concerned about famine. Why? Well, let's go to Proverbs 10.3. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. What an awesome passage. Psalm 33, verse 16. No king, going to the highest level, the one with the most power, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him and those who hope in His mercy. This is prepping. Fearing Him and hoping in His gracious mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in what? 
Famine. In famine. Psalm 60, verse 10. It is not you, O God, who cast us off, and you, O God, who did not go out with our enemies. Is it not you who went out with our enemies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Over and over again, the Bible takes it, strips from you any confidence that you have in yourself. It takes it from you for your own well-being. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. And it is he who will protect us from his own judgment. Let me take you to the New Testament. I'll just give you one more example. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even to life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves. We should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul got it. Paul understood it. And you have to understand, I could show you many others. This is the common narrative in Scripture. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in your own capabilities to save you. Put your trust in the Lord. He and he alone has the power to save. He and he alone has the power to feed you, to clothe you, to give us rain in its season. Now, having said that, having said all of that, I want to be clear so that there is no misunderstandings. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to store food. That's wise. To have extra food in case of emergencies, this is wisdom. I'm not saying you shouldn't have alternative sources for heat and electric. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy land in the middle of nowhere to get off the grid. Because I think that's good, that you're not relying upon the electric companies, the gas companies, to supply your need. I think it's fabulous to be self-sufficient. I think it's wise. I just want to be clear on that. All of these things are wonderful. The point I am making is don't you dare get caught where your heart has left the Lord and putting your trust in Him because I can assure you all of those things and but a second could vanish after it hits the fan. When the hummus hits the fan, all of it could famish in a blink of an eye. So with that said, we don't put our trust in any of these things. We put our trust in the Lord. Our prepping is going to be on our knees. Amen?